Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. When Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and his evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, <clears throat> behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction. I will make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of the mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations... And great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. And thus sends the reading, the very word of God. Growing up, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. I used to go to my grandfather's house, and my grandfather Boatwright liked to play checkers. I used to play checkers with him, and uh, he would variate some of the rules. Sometimes you play blow checkers where if you don't actually skip the person and you can actually take their little checker. But it was a simple game for a child to understand. Kind of liked it. It's more of an aggressive game. You know, it was always offensive, offensive, offensive. Then I got to middle school, got around some smart people, and they started to play chess. I learned to play that game. I was never good at it. <laughs> Not good at it now. You have to think too many moves ahead. If you're going to be good at chess, you have to think moves and moves ahead. And you heard the old saying that many of us are playing checkers and someone else is playing chess. This is how God rules the universe, isn't it? We see the here and now. We make simple moves. We think we know what we're doing. And God is making just not five moves, ten moves, but millions of moves ahead of what you think is actually happening. He's moving his characters, people, and nations around whichever way he wants to move to get to where he wants to go. 
We're going to see four things in this passage. We're going to see God's minister. We're going to see God's clarity. God's sovereignty and God's promises. God's minister, which is Jeremiah. God's clarity, he's very clear. God's sovereignty, he's in charge. And we're going to see God's promises. And if we look at God's minister. Some of you know that I was a youth pastor for almost a decade of my life. My first ministry opportunity was serving in a church. And we used to go to, I know Jeff and Kelly Loomis probably know what youth specialties are. They had this conference once a year. Some of you are smiling, you know. You go to this big, huge conferences with, with maybe 5,000 other youth pastors. And you're supposed to learn how to be a better youth pastor. They give you all these tips and all these things that you go back to your, your ministry and you can help the kids learn more about Christ. And when you get there, it's pretty interesting. You've got your cool crowd. You're like, man, I want to be like those guys. You've got your other people who are kind of the loners. You've got your older dudes in their 40s and 50s. You've got your other people who don't know what they're doing. And the first thing you get asked there is, how many kids you got in youth ministry? Right? And you're like, well, if I count everybody at one time, right? Because you always want to explode the number because you'll make yourself look better, right? And I thought one day I'll be happy when I'm out of that setting and I get into a denomination that doesn't do that. And lo and behold, you get to the Presbyterian church and you go to General Assembly and you go to Presbyterian meetings and you go to conferences and you say, Hi, I'm Travis Peacock. How many people are in your church? <laughs> Same issue. People look as if your worth and your value is based upon how many people are in your ministry or what you can do for the kingdom. There's been some people in the Presbyterian church look at people and say, well, that was Bush League ministry, what you've done, and they thought that what you've done really doesn't count until you've made it to something else. It runs deep in everyone. Every single ministry that you do or everything you do for the Lord, you can have that thought. But look at what happens to Jeremiah here in verse 25. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Maybe the longest introduction to an actual date in the Bible, but he says, at this time, verse 3, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. For 23 years, Jeremiah is faithfully preaching the word. And most people would think, well, if Jeremiah is preaching for 23 years, he must have the largest ministry in the entire land. He must be the one that is asked to write all the articles and speak at all the great conferences. He's Jeremiah the prophet for 23 years. He must be the greatest in the kingdom because of the numbers. But the truth is, no one listened. See, oftentimes we judge someone's ministry by how large it is. And Jonathan Edwards would say, well, that's a no sign. As we've been going through during prayer evenings with Jonathan Edwards, it's a no sign. A huge ministry isn't, 
isn't a sign of faithfulness, and a small ministry isn't a sign of unfaithfulness. That's not how you judge. You don't judge by the results because God brings the results. When we hear about Jesus in the kingdom, when Jesus says the greatest giver in the kingdom is the lady who gave the two mites, that's how the kingdom works. It doesn't work like you think it works, and this is not a New Testament teaching. This is a biblical teaching. This is how it's always worked. Some of God's most faithful people, most people would consider not good at their job. Consider them failures. What happens when you don't receive results? What happens when you're serving the Lord? Whether you're setting up chairs or doing sound or playing an instrument or teaching a Sunday school and you never get recognition. Would you do it for 23 years and never see results? Would you keep sharing the Lord with a friend, a family member for 23 years if you never saw results? Would you pray for the Lord to answer prayer if you never see results? See, Jeremiah stayed faithful for 23 years with no results. Most people would say, oh, he's a failure. But he was concerned about pleasing one person and one person alone, and that was God. And since there are some future preachers in here, I pray and hope that the Lord crushes your view and your desire to want to be the most influential person in the world because it's in every single preacher and you're lying if you say it's not. You must suppress that and crush that because the truth is, you've got an example here of Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophets we've ever seen and no one listened to him. So you don't judge your ministry based upon how large it is. And you sure don't judge it based upon how small it is. All of us can learn to be more faithful. 23 years Jeremiah is doing what the Lord has called him to do. May all of us be that type of person. Which brings us to the second point, is God's clarity. I don't know if you, maybe you're like me, you're, you're the husband and your wife says, hey, go to the store and pick something up. And you go to pick it up and you realize there's like 10 different types of it. You're like, what? And then you FaceTime her, which I've done before in Aldi. Hey, which one of these do you want me to get? Right? Sometimes men just need a text message to be super clear. Oftentimes we wish things, I wish it was just more clear. Well, let me tell you, God's clear. He's very clear. Look at verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and the prophets. God keeps sending them, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. God is clear. I've given you everything you need. Follow me. Give me your heart. Don't worship idols. Not rocket science. Turn your heart to me. Reject idols. Follow me. But you know Satan likes to muddy the revelation of God. You know anything about Genesis. Remember Satan? Did, did, did God really say that? Is this not a problem today? 
It's very clear what Scripture says and what God requires of us, but yet the serpent continues to try to muddy the waters of the revelation of God. And he's absolutely clear. Don't go after other gods. Don't worship them. Don't provoke me to anger. See, the, the Lord is very kind and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They knew that. Yet they continued to provoke him. They continued to test him. In verse 7, Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Just as Jeremiah is clear, God is clear through the prophet Jeremiah, he's also clear through his greatest prophet Jesus, who is the second person of the Godhead. He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus makes it just as clear. Repent. We know we have sinned. Believe the gospel. Believe that I will die on the cross for your sins and raise again for the third day. If you follow me, you'll never be destroyed. If you follow me, you'll have peace and everlasting life. If you follow me, you'll have eternal rest. If you don't follow me, you'll never have rest. You'll never have eternal rest. You'll always have turmoil in your soul. God is very clear. Very clear in His revelation on what He wants. He wants your heart. He wants you to repent. He wants you to believe the gospel. Don't worship idols made with hands. Don't worship the idols of your heart. He's been saying from the time of Genesis, really, in the times of Jeremiah, and he says it now. Follow me with all your heart. We also see God's sovereignty in this passage. And what's interesting as we think about God's sovereignty, He has in His game plan knights, bishops, rooks. He's got queens and He's got kings. And He seems to move them wherever He wants to move them. Right? Right? asked my nephew something a few days ago. Did God ask your permission when he did this? No. Why? He goes, I guess because I'm not God. Yep. He doesn't ask your permission when he does something. He doesn't ask your permission when he removes nations and brings nations up. He doesn't ask your permission on how to do things. He's the sovereign king of the universe. He does what he wants he does it how he wants to do it. Look at this passage. Verse 8, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, what's going to happen? Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. God is going to use a foreign nation, a wicked foreign nation, 
a nation that was full of idolatry. A nation actually named Babylon. Now, if you know anything about Babylon, you understand the Tower of Babel, that people came together to, to build a great city. They built a tower that would, that would be higher than any type of flood. My interpretation, but I like it. They they didn't think God meant anything anymore. And God says, I will confuse them. And if you look at the history of Babylon, there's always been confusion. There's always been idols and idols and idols and idols and idols. And you see God saying, you want to love your idols? I'll have one of the most idolatrous nations that ever existed come and destroy you. And that's where you'll live. You'll live in a place of idols. You'll get exactly what you want. Babylon, of course, was the capital city of the former superpower of Syria. You've heard about how wicked and brutal they were. You know, Babylon was cruel in themselves. They were a cruel nation. Do you remember Daniel 6? When that time it was King Darius. He says, if you're praying at all for 30 days, you have to pray to him. And he says, if you don't pray to me, because I'm the king and I am God, I'm going to throw you in a lion's den. You, you ever think about how terrible that is? So we're not used to hearing things like that from a king. If you pray to anything else, to any other god, you're going to be killed. Of course, Daniel's a great Presbyterian, isn't he? He ain't going to listen to what the government says. Can't, oh, you can't pray? We'll show you. He slung the doors open and prayed, because that's what Presbyterians do, right? And he's praying. Didn't care if he had died or not. Of course, you get to Daniel 3, of course. That's the, the famous story when Nebuchadnezzar is actually king then. He's ruling and reigning. And he says, when you hear all these instruments played, if you don't bend the knee and worship this golden image, you're going to be burnt in the furnace. You understand how brutal that is? That's brutal. This is how Babylon ruled and reigned. This is how they took over nations. You either bend the knee to us or you die. And sometimes even when they bent the knee, they went ahead and killed you. They were brutal, brutal people who worshipped false gods. But you understand, sometimes the best way to win a chess game is to, to, to give up a pawn, is it not? To offer a pawn. See, see, God does this often. Well, he has his queens and his kings and his rooks and his bishops, but, but he has pawns also. And he raises up Babylon, this great nation, and uses them as a pawn. For a time, for a moment. And you see what verse 9 calls the king of Babylon? My servant. It's not the first king we see that's called his servant who is wicked and evil. You have to understand that God is sovereign even over wicked nations. God is sovereign over evil. Do you remember when Jesus was on earth? Mark 1.27. What were they amazed about? He commands even the unclean spirits and what do the unclean spirits do? They listen and obey. They're afraid of the Son of Man. 
They know who's in charge. Are you going to send us to the place now? <laughs> Go. Why? Because they listen to the king of kings. Paul will say, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All authority and dominion is given to Christ and all kingdoms, all kings. No matter how evil you are, you submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And He will move these evil men and evil governments like pawns. Johnny Erickson Tata said, When it comes to evil things like the Holocaust and other horrors, most of us assume God has His hands tied behind His back. We figure the devil wreaks havoc when God's not looking. We rationalize the Lord's mistakes, figuring that he took his hands off the will, and that's why these tragedies happen. That's how most people live. Oh man, if God was just in charge, these things wouldn't have happened. John Piper wrote this small book only like I think it's 80 pages called Spectacular Sins I recommended to all of you written in 2008 and he spoke about how God is sovereign over the spectacular sins that we see and, and one of the reasons he wrote this book is because he's afraid that the West America has been so coddled that our worldview is so small that we've forgotten that God is even in charge of wicked governments and sin. I would agree with him. One of the things that he says is we need to be reminded of Revelation 13, 7, that the beast will win for a season. Then the conqueror will come. We see this oftentimes Satan and his evil kingdom looks like they're winning. But it's only for a season. See, they've already lost the battle. They've already lost the war. I believe Satan himself is, is already bound. It's another discussion, but I believe that in my heart. I believe that's what Scripture teaches. But somehow, some way, like Al Capone, he's running some things. We know that there's evil in the world. But let me tell you, God's in charge, and oftentimes He will use that evil to judge His own people. Satan is God's lackey. We see it most clearly in the cross of Christ, do we not? Do we not see that Rome, the greatest superpower the world has ever known, Satan was let loose in his hatred on Jesus Christ on Calvary? And what did Peter say? <laughs> that was God's plan all along. God's plan all along. What you meant for evil, just like Genesis 50 says, God meant for good. See, Satan thought he won, but he was just in the plan of God. That is helpful for us to know that God is in complete control of evil, even of evil in the world, of evil nations. <coughs> Nothing takes place apart from the sovereign hand of the Lord.
We've seen God's minister. We've seen the clarity of God, God's sovereignty. And now let's look at his promise. Oftentimes when we hear about God's promises, we think, oh, he's promised to bless us. He's promised to give us many, many things to keep us from harm. Many of those things are true. He has given us many blessings that are good. I was thinking about my grandpa, thinking about God's promises, and he used to collect those little glasses from Hardee's. Now, some of you are too young to remember this, because your, your millennials are going, what? It used to go, when you, when you went to a fast food restaurant, you could order a meal and they would give you this little glass, like a glass you could drink out of, and it had the Smurfs on it or Star Wars on it, and you used to want to collect them all, right? This is the early 80s. It was a big deal. There was a war. Who had the better glasses, right? I remember I had some of those, and I was going to sell them on eBay right about 2000 because they were hot then, right? And I remember you have to go, and, and you have to go to the post office, and, and someone buy it on eBay, and you'd have to wrap it real good because the glass is so paper thin. It wasn't like a good glass. It was cheaply made glasses, and everybody fought over them. But they sold good in the early 2000s. But You'd have to wrap it up. You put your paper in it. And you wrap it really nice, and you and you put the bubble wrap all over it, as much newspaper as you can, and you put it in a box, and then you send it to someone. And the post office would say, "What's in it?" You say, "It's breakable," and they put on the side, "Handle with care." Handle with care, and that could mean one or two things, right? It could mean that it's fragile. Or it could mean that you're handling electricity. When we see God's promises, most people think, handle with care. God's fragile. Oh, God's not fragile, my friends. He's more like electricity. You better be careful. When you take the Lord's Supper, the greatest promises that you'll ever experience on Sunday morning, when you hear the Word of God preach, you take the supper, and Jesus Christ in His Spirit meets with you, literally in spirit with you. And you're strengthened in your faith, and you walk away going, Jesus, die for me, I can't wait for this week, bring whatever. That's what you experience in the supper. The reality that Christ died for you. But there's also warnings attached to those promises, aren't they? And with the blessings of God and His covenants, there, there, there comes handle with care. Judah was giving so many blessings, but they had to handle it with care, right? As, as Romans teaches, I believe Josh has this next week, remember, remember what? Both the kindness and severity of God. Both. The kindness and severity of God. They're both seen here. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the grinding of the millstones, which is all the food and the light of the lamp. You had everything. What a great nation to be a part of. So much happiness. Oh, so much blessings. No more. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 
all the blessings you have squandered. Done. Because you refused to listen to the Lord's words, you took advantage of His kindness, you took advantage of His patience. The king of Babylon is going to come destroy everything that you know for 70 years. You know what's interesting about the 70 years? Most people think, oh, Jeremiah, dud prophet, right? No one listened to him. Daniel's old. I think he's old in Daniel 9. And he's reading the scriptures. And you know what he's reading? Jeremiah. And he says, wait a minute. Jeremiah, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that we will only be in exile for 70 years. We need to get ready to go back to the land. We're going to go back to the land. We're going to build what? We're going to build another temple. We're going to have the Son of Man actually walk through these temple doors. Jeremiah's a dud. That makes me laugh. He's writing to Daniel. Daniel's writing and listening to Jeremiah. He's reading about this. And, and some may ask, well, is 70 years little? Or some of you, is 70 years little? I, I, I kind of think it's literal, but we don't know when it started. We know exactly when the temple was destroyed. I think I believe it's somewhat literal. We can get to the weeds. You can continue to read Daniel 9, and he talks about 70 weeks of seven. And there's more written on that than there is in the book of Revelation. That tells you how deep and rabbit holy you can get when you start reading Daniel 9. They call it the pool of despair because of so much written about it. All dealing with the reading of Jeremiah. But the truth is, Jeremiah gives this prophecy for 70 years. Almost one generation. If you know anything about God, he did the same thing in the wilderness. Did he not? 70 years, he gave that time, he gave that generation time to die off so then they can go in and take the land. This generation that knew nothing about idols, that, that worshipped false gods, they would eventually die off and then God would send them back to the land. And the one thing you need to understand is Jeremiah is telling them your suffering won't last forever. Your suffering will not last forever. See, God only allows suffering for a time. I'm not going to tell you that your time on earth will be always without suffering. You may suffer for the rest of your life, but I can guarantee you this. One day, your suffering will cease. One day, you will have a new body in Christ. You will have a new mind. You will have a new heart and new emotions. Your suffering will cease one day. One day, judgment is coming. And if you remember the book of Nahum, you understand Jonah part. This is Jonah part two, right? All of a sudden, the, the, the Ninevites could care less about God anymore. The, the Assyrian nation was, was, was destroying and killing Israelites everywhere. And Nahum says, listen, your time is short. See, when we hear judgment is coming, oftentimes we're afraid because we're not going through persecution. 
But if you lived in a land where people hated you and was persecuting you, you would love the second coming. You would love the judgment of God. I hope and pray we'll never have to understand that. But I believe there's coming a time where we will. Seventy years, they're being oppressed. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, has come and taken the people back into Babylon. And look at verse 12. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves, even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and their work of their hands. Though God may use evil to judge His own servants or to judge His own people, calling them my servants, they don't get off the hook. Do you see this? God says, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon is my servant. He'll be used to judge my people. But at the same time, they don't get off the hook. Why? Because of Romans 9. It works both ways. God didn't force the Babylonians to hate his Yahweh and his people. God didn't force them to do this. They loved killing Yahweh's people. They loved oppressing God's people. They loved it and everything inside of them. And this is how sovereignty works, right? God uses their own hearts in His great game of, of, of chess that He is orchestrating in sovereignty. It's back to Romans 9. God's not forcing the Babylonians to do this. They wanted to do it. The same way He's not forcing you to love Him. He gives you a new heart. He gives you the faith. But you put your faith in Christ. It's something you want to do. It's something you desire to do. It's something that you love to do. You love to worship and be around God's people. It's not forcing you to do that. And God says that because of the evil that Nebuchadnezzar did and Babylon did, he will judge them. That's a stern warning to all the nations who want to persecute Christians. It's not going to end well for them. As we close, there was a lady named Elizabeth Prentice. She was married to a Presbyterian minister. She had a little boy named Cody, five years old. They didn't understand this in the 1860s, but... Cody got meningitis. He got sicker and sicker and they said he's going to die. And she helped her son die well at five. Three months later, she gives birth to a daughter. Within hours and hours of the birth, then the daughter dies. She gets sick and becomes an invalid. 
most of her life. And she, she questions herself thinking, what can I do for the Lord? And she wrote the lyrics of this hymn. Let sorrow do its work, come grief or pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain, when they can sing with me more love of Christ to thee. You probably remember it because you sang it this morning. Let sorrow do its work. See, she understood the sovereignty of God. She understood that my servant, evil, wicked, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, was just doing God's work. No matter what takes place, whether it's evil nations, whether it's sicknesses, whatever it is, God is sovereign and He's doing it for your good. You may see no results for 23 years, or maybe even more. See, we don't hear the rest of the story Jeremiah will hear. <laughs> Seemed like his whole life, nobody listened to him. But he was faithful. And God is good. And he's doing all things for his glory, for your good. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of the word.